Heavenly Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for this week. And if we're honest, as much as we'd like to say we've been seeking after you, the truth is you came to seek and save the lost. You sought us out and we are forever grateful. And so Lord, thank you, especially right now for your word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but your word endures forever and you promised that it will not return void. And so we love you and we ask that your spirit would fill this time and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, you can grab a seat. How's everybody doing? You're doing all right for a, a week into this thing. So, hey, I just, I want you to know that um, what God is doing among you is not normal, okay? I mean, not just this week, but like the last six years is not normal. I, I spend time all over the world in churches all over the place And I just have to tell you what God is doing among you is really something special and do not take it for granted. Um, And it's, it's been fun over the last year or so to get to know your pastor. We've been in a group together, uh, meets a couple times a year and we get to talk on the phone and text. And so it's just, you got a really special pastor as well. And, and he loves the Lord and he's a good, he's a good man. So in about late 2020, I started getting this pain in my back. And and then it kind of got into the front of my chest. And for a couple of weeks, I didn't know what was going on. My wife and kids for Father's Day had bought me a stand-up paddleboard and I thought I had just been paddling too much. And so I kind of laid off the paddleboarding for a little while and then the pain didn't go away. And so I did what you aren't supposed to do. I went to the Google machine and said, <laughs> back and chest pain at the same time. And it said, it said heartburn and indigestion. And I was like, oh, okay. So I took some Tums, it didn't go away. Went to the store, I got some over-the-counter heartburn medicine. I took that for a while. You're nodding, no, some of you know, that stuff doesn't work. So I went to a doctor and he's like, that's junk, take this. I don't really like to take prescriptions, but I took it, it did nothing. And so finally the doctor was like, all right, you need to come in, we need to do it, we need to do some scans. And so I went in on a Friday afternoon and they, they knocked me out, they did a bunch of scans and we went home and Kristen, my wife and I were in our kitchen and our kitchen is like, there's a bar right here. And so Kristen's kind of standing on this side and I'm standing on this side and my phone is sitting right there and we're talking. We hadn't been home, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes and my phone rings and I look down at my phone and it's the doctor. Now listen, if, if you're a doctor, I'm sorry, but you guys don't call anybody back ever. <laughs> and, and so when I saw it was the doctor, I was like, uh-oh, this isn't good. So I answered the phone and he's like, Dr. Flint? I said, yeah. He's like, um, we need you to come in tomorrow morning. We need to do some, some further looking. And I was like, hold on a minute. I put it on speakerphone. And I said, what are we talking about? And he said, yep. Yeah, we need you to come in tomorrow morning. You can be here at 6.30 or 7.30 tomorrow morning. I'm like, tomorrow's Saturday. Like, can this not wait till Monday? And he's like, nope, we need you in here. Uh, we found a mass in your throat, in your esophagus. 
And listen, I've done ministry long enough. I've been in enough hospitals to know that when somebody tells you you have something in your, a mass in your esophagus, that does not go well. So I show up, we go in the next day, they do, uh, they do some more scopes in and out, looking around, all that sort of stuff. Good news is there wasn't a mass in my throat. I didn't have esophageal cancer. I wasn't going down in a couple of years. The bad news was they found a tumor that started in the front of my neck and stretched across my vocal nerves and went back to my spine. It was about the size of my finger, stretching all the way. And that's why I had those pains was because that tumor was pressing on my spine. Well, it took probably about the next six months of all kinds of tests, genetic sequencing and uh, biopsies and everything. And I'll tell you, I mean, it was, not only was there like physical pain here, and not only were some of those tests really painful and really unpleasant, but the minute you get the news that we found a tumor, it, it goes from physical suffering to it becomes emotional suffering and mental suffering, and it becomes relational because now all of a sudden my wife is dealing with this. And so as they you know, went through testing, finally, uh, they figured it all out. I had surgery, and when they went in and did surgery, uh, the tumor that they had told me was benign. There was another tumor behind it, and it was cancer. So they removed it, and the kind of cancer that I have, it doesn't, it's not treatable with chemotherapy and all that kind of stuff. It's treatable with radiation, but you start pointing a laser at your vocal nerve when all you can do is this for a living, it's not good. I told the doctor when I went into surgery, I was like, listen, man, you can slip and cut my arm off. It'll be fine. Just don't cut the nerve, okay? So they went in, they, they cleaned it all up. They said, everything looks good. We went back and did tests. And then a couple months go by, they run some more tests. Everything's fine. Six months go by, they run some more tests. Everything's fine. And then about six months ago, I was back in for regular tests and I went back in and came out and I, and after you've done enough of these tests, you know what they're looking at. And so I'm laying there and they're doing, it was an ultrasound, they're doing an ultrasound. And the ultrasound goes from being the normal 15 minute ultrasound to 30 minutes to 45 minutes to an hour. And I said, you're seeing something, aren't you? And she goes, I'm not allowed to talk about that. And it was cancer again, two more tumors. And so, Here's the thing, Jesus made some incredible promises. I mean, he made some promises, like he said, I will be with you always. Or he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Or I will never lose one of my own. Those are some amazing promises that Jesus made. But there's one promise that Jesus made. You don't even have to be a believer in order to believe this promise is true. He said, in this life, you will have trouble or you will have tribulation or you will have suffering. And listen, just a show of hands, come on, real quick. I told you my story. How many of you have ever suffered in any way, shape or form? Raise your hand. The rest of you are liars <laughs> or you're just young and your skin is tight and it'll... God bless you. <laughs> it's coming for you. But li listen, here's the thing. I mean, we just said it earlier in the service. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Yes. 
And suffering and the goodness of God is one of the most profound questions that we can deal with. Now listen, when, whenever we're suffering, there's really some common ways that we go about trying to deal with our suffering. Like we all have our go-to moves, right? So one of our go-to moves is we'll just deny it. This is my wife's favorite move, right? You're suffering. If you're a denier, somebody comes up to you and they say, how are you doing? And you're like, blessed and highly favored. And you're like, no, you're not. You got cancer. Or, Better than I deserve. Like leave that for Dave Ramsey. It's not like, that's complete denial. Another go-to move that we all have is, this is mine, is to minimize it. Right? When I said, hey, if you've ever suffered in any way, if you're a minimizer, what you thought was, I shouldn't raise my hand because that guy just told me his story of cancer and then it came back again. And you are minimizing, when you do that, you minimize your suffering and that's you trying to deal with it. One of our other, our other ways that maybe this is your go-to move is you're just gonna muscle through it, right? You're just gonna white knuckle it. You're like, I will get through this thing. I will eat my vitamins and I'll run harder. I will, I'll get through it. I'll do it. Maybe your, maybe your go-to move is to self-medicate when you're suffering. I mean, it could be alcohol, it could be drugs, but it could be food. It could be a little Target therapy. <laughs> you know, you know, that's you. There you go. Um, maybe your go-to move is to entertain it away. I'm just going to watch another Netflix movie. Just going to, I'm going to rewatch Yellowstone again. I'm going to get a paddleboard, whatever. And those things are not wrong. I'm going to go on vacation. None of those things are wrong. But when you try to, when you try to fix your suffering with entertainment, or you're just going to drown it out. Maybe yours is to drown it out with busyness. I'm just going to work harder. I'm going to work longer. I'm going to, I'm going to vacation harder. I'm gonna get busier. And here's the thing, none of those things actually deal with our suffering, actually solve the problem of our suffering in any way. I mean, it might for a minute, it's a little bit like a beach ball. You guys live near the beach too, so this'll work. You know the little, little blow up kind of colored beach balls? You ever play with those in the pool or out at the beach? You take them and if you were little, the game was you'd take the beach ball and you'd shove it underwater, right? If you're like me and my friends, you, we were little, you'd get around it and you'd try to hold it down and see how long you could hold it down. And you can hold it down for a while, but eventually that thing is gonna come back up. And when it comes back up, it doesn't just like ease back up to the surface. It comes erupting up out of the surface. In all of these ways that we try to deal with our suffering, they're just it's like the beach ball principle. You shove it down for a little while, but eventually it's gonna come up and it's not gonna be pretty. And so what I found was you can go out and you can Google all kinds of ways to deal with your suffering. And if you do that, you will find page after page after page after page after page. But here's my goal tonight. My goal tonight is to not give you any more tips or tricks to deal with your suffering. Because what I found in my suffering was I didn't need anybody telling me, here's four more things you should do. 
even though they were really good and they meant really well and they were trying to help most of the time, they were just trying to make themselves feel better. And what they were actually doing was they were just putting more things on my shoulder and then I failed at doing the things they told me to do and then it doubled down on my suffering. And what we, what we need in our suffering is not more good advice. What we need in our suffering is good news. That's what we need. And so in this time, as we're seeking the Lord, and if you're suffering and seeking the Lord, here's what I want to do tonight. We're going to go to John chapter 11. And what I want to do is I want to give you a handful of things that Jesus is doing in your suffering that you don't have to go looking for. You don't have to go seek them out really hard. I'm just going to tell you, this is what Jesus is doing. And maybe you've asked, maybe the question that you've asked is, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, I'm suffering. Jesus, what are you doing? And I want to answer that question. What is Jesus doing in our suffering? So in John chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Do you see that? Lazarus is ill and Jesus loves him. I mean, it's gonna say it again if you go down a little further in verse five, it says that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It says in verse 36, look, see how he loves him. Love and suffering are not mutually exclusive. God's love and our suffering can exist in the same space, in the same time. And so Jesus, what are you doing in my suffering is that Jesus is endlessly loving us in our suffering. Jeremiah 31.3 says that, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. 1 John 4 says God is Love. Hebrews 13, eight says God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Take those three things. God has loved you with an everlasting love. God himself is love and God never changes. Which means even when you are suffering, God has not changed his mind about his love for you. My, I, so I have two kids. Gavin and Sophie, they're, they're, our son is about to graduate college. Our daughter's about to graduate high school. We're about to be free. <laughs> and it's going to be good. We're going to have fun. But when Gavin was little, Gavin had a set of bunk beds in his room. They were actually my bunk beds from when I was a little kid. And, uh, and we just had a rule that he couldn't go up on the top bunk beds. And so he slept on the bottom bunk beds. And so we put him to bed one night. He was probably about, I don't know, six years old, five or six years old. Put him to bed. We go to bed and it's in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden in the middle of the night, we just hear this like thud. And there comes a, I'm telling you, a blood curdling scream. And you parents, you know, like there's the scream, like I'm not really hurt, but come pay attention to me, which you ignore. And then there's... Then there's the scream that's like, something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. It was this one. 
So I jump up, it's probably two in the morning, I don't know, jump up, run into his bedroom, and when I get in there, I look, and he's laying on the floor, and he's holding his arm, and I asked him what had happened, and he, he didn't know. What we came to find out was, in the middle of the night, he had climbed up on his top bunk, fallen asleep, and then he had rolled out of his top bunk, and when he fell down, he caught himself midair, and he broke, he woke up to breaking his arm. So pause, here's what I know you're thinking right now. Where were the bed rails? It's a really good question. We had the bed rails, they were in the closet. So it's not the moral story, but it's not enough to have the bed rails, you have to actually put them on the bed. Doesn't matter, the little wretch disobeyed us. But so, but look, Do you think at that moment when I ran in and found him on the floor, suffering even out of disobedience to me, do you think I looked at him and went, my son, you got what you deserved? And turned, no. If anything, I scooped him up and grabbed him and pulled him tighter in that moment and told him I loved him and said, I'm here, I got you, I'm your dad, I love you, let's go you get two popsicles. (laughs) But you can't look at your circumstances to determine whether God loves you or not. You can't look at it. Bad circumstances does not mean that God doesn't love you. So the question is, how do you know that God loves you? The place to look to know that God loves you despite the circumstances, any of the circumstances in your life, good or bad, is that you look to the cross. The cross is the definitive declaration that God loves you no matter what your circumstances are. So in verse four, he goes on and he says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Now that's, That is a bold promise. And if you know the story, you know what happens next, don't you? Lazarus dies. So it looks like Jesus just makes this bold promise. And then it looks like he can't keep his promises. But if you know the end of the story... You know, it doesn't matter what the middle of the story looks like. You know, the end of the story tells you that Jesus was perfectly able to keep his promise and it did not end in death. And so Jesus, what are you doing in the middle of my suffering is that Jesus is faithfully keeping all of his promises in our suffering. All of his promises. I remember when I was little, I was probably in elementary school, we lived in Nashville, Tennessee. And... I went over to my uncle's house one night. We were having family dinner and I went out in his garage. I don't know what I was doing. Just got bored with family dinner and wandered out in his garage. I go out there and in his garage was a giant like 60s gold Cadillac. I mean like 10 people could sit in this two-seater Cadillac, right? I mean, huge. And I I had no idea what it was, but at a young age, I went, that is an awesome car. That is super cool. So I went into my uncle and I'm like, what is that out there? And he's like, oh yeah, we call that old gold. I'm like, can I have old gold? And he's like, when you turn 16, you can have old gold. And I'm like, yes. Do you know what I didn't get when I turned 16? <laughs> old gold. He sold it. Like it's, 
It's one thing to make a promise. It's a whole other thing to be able to keep a promise. And in our suffering, Jesus is keeping every single one of his promises. And just like you look to the cross to determine God's love for you, the way that you know that God will keep every single one of his promises to you and to me is that we look to the resurrection. The resurrection is the definitive answer that God will keep every single one of his promises. He conquers the grave. He certainly can keep every one of his promises. Do you know that there are 8,810 promises in scripture? And 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. Every single one of them. And so God, Jesus is faithfully keeping all of his promises in our suffering. So it goes on in verse four, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Glory is like the weightiness of God. That's literally what it means. It's like you take all the attributes of God, all his like all knowing and all powerful and all sufficient. You take all those things. And if you, it's if you were to put them on a scale and weigh them out, there would be nothing heavier than that. They outweigh everything. That's what the glory of God is. And that when we glorify God, what we're, what we are saying is God, you are, you are greater, weightier, heavier, bigger than anything we could ever hope, dream, or imagine. That's what he's saying in here. And so what he is doing is he's saying that suffering and the glory of God can exist in the same place. And so Jesus, what do you do in my suffering is that Jesus is ultimately revealing God's glory in our suffering. He says it is for the glory of God. Our, our suffering can glorify God. And the way we know that, if you, if you go and read in John 17, it says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, he's at the end of his life. He says, Father, the hour has come. The hour that he's talking about is the hour to go to the cross and suffer under the weight of the sin of the world. There's no greater suffering than what Jesus suffered on the cross. And he says, the hours come for me to suffer. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. He says, it's for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified. Your suffering isn't pointless. It's, it's not Pointless. In fact, what could be more God-glorifying than at the point at which you have nothing else and you turn to God and you say, God, it doesn't matter if everything else is gone. You are enough for me in the middle of this. That is really God-glorifying. Nothing is greater than the glory of God. There's, lo there's lots of things that may, they may be really urgent, there's nothing more important. And if, and if you and I are really honest, don't you want Jesus to be about the most important things, not just the most urgent things? Yes. So in verse five, it goes on, it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister 
and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. How about that for love? I love you. I'm just going to camp out here for a little bit. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And then Jesus answered. He gives this crazy answer. We don't have time to get into it. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light's not in him. And I imagine they're looking at him like, what? What are you talking about? After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, well, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly. It's as if he looked at him and went, look, look at my eyes, boys. <laughs> Come on. Look, read my, real simple, guys. Here's what I'm saying. Lazarus has died. Then he says this, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. That little phrase, for your sake, it means for your good. So you ask, Jesus, what are you doing in my suffering? And it's that Jesus is graciously working for our good in our suffering. Romans 8, 28 says, we know, we are certain that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. If you are a follower of Jesus, you can be certain that everything that happens in your life, the Lord is working in the middle of it and he's working it out for your good. Yeah, yeah. There is no exception to that. And so listen, no matter where suffering comes from, and suffering come from a lot of places. Listen, su suffering can come from me, right? I, ca I can cause some of my own suffering. In fact, most of my suffering is suffering I have brought on myself. At, at least foolish decisions, at worst, some really sinful decisions that I've suffered for. Some of the suffering in our life is because you cause suffering upon me, right? If, if you ever said, I do, and then he said, nope, and then walked away, you felt somebody else cause suffering in your life. Suffering come because we have an enemy, you have, you have an enemy that his sole mission is to kill, steal, and destroy. Cause you to suffer. We suffer because we live in a world that, that molecules just don't replicate right. It's a broken world and things are broken and we suffer from it. And we live in a world where sometimes things that we think are hard and we think are painful are really our heavenly father working some things out for our good. One of the verses that, that I loved in the middle of all my cancer treatment was in 1 Peter 5.10. It says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace. Think, 
Grace is God's unearned, unmerited, ill-deserved. It's not just undeserved, it's ill-deserved favor of God. And God is a God of all grace. Remember one day our, uh, I was out chopping and Sophie was little. She was probably, I don't know, three or four years old. And I was out somewhere and I saw this dress and it was like this little patchwork kind of hippie looking little dress. And I thought, oh man, like I'm a dad, I'm a dad of a girl. Like, so I buy her this dress and I put it in a box and I come home and Gavin's on the floor. He's playing matchbox cars in the living room and Sophie's over there, I don't know what she's doing. And I walk over and I'm like, Sophie, I bought you a present and I get it down. She unwraps it. She get, you know, holds it up. She's like, oh, I love it. And Gavin kind of looks up. And of course, you know, she takes all her clothes off and puts the dress on and she's twirling around. And then she's like, dad, I love it. I love it. it gives me a big... And then Gavin looks up and he goes, that's not fair. To which, like, I mean, come on, moms, dads. The minute one of them's like, that's it, you're like, Phew. I just, I looked at him and I go, you want fair, bud? Let's get in the truck. I'll go buy you a dress too. And he's like, no way, no way. It's cool. We're good, dad. Like, forget I said it. You don't want fair. You don't, you don't want to get what you deserve. What you want is unearned, unmerited goodness and favor of God. That's what you want. And Hebrews 12 tells us that actually some of the pain that we feel is not punishment from God. It's that we are sons and daughters and that we are being disciplined. And discipline is not punishment. Those are different things. Discipline is discipling. It's shaping, forming you to be more like Jesus. And so sometimes some of what we feel that we interpret as suffering is God shaping and molding us to be more like Jesus, working for our good in our life. And here's the thing. Here's, if you are a follower of Jesus without without knowing anything about your story, here's what I can tell you. God is not punishing you. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, but you don't know my story. You don't know what I did. You just drive up from Jacksonville, walk in here and go beyond a shadow of a doubt, God is not punishing you. Here's how I can say that. It's because at the cross, Jesus bore all of our punishment. He took all of it. And so he either took all of it or what he did on the cross was not sufficient for any of it. And if he took all of your punishment as a believer and follower of Jesus, then your suffering is not punishment from God. So four days goes by, Lazarus has died. Jesus comes to Bethany. The sisters, man, they're hurting. They're mourning. They're grieving. Honestly, they're, they're probably mad at Jesus. He stayed back. And then each sister in her pain comes out to Jesus. And what's so interesting is they both say the exact same thing. In verse 21 and verse 32, they both say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, at that moment, does Jesus look at him and just turn and walk away? Like if you had said that to me, if I was there, which thank God I'm not Jesus, 
But if I had been there and you walked up and they were like, if you had been here, I would have been like, oh, okay, I'm leaving. But Jesus doesn't do that. He compassionately comforts each of them exactly where they need to be met. If you look at it, Martha comes and she wants to have this whole big theological discussion about the resurrection. And Jesus meets her there. And he says, okay, if that's what's good, if knowing about the resurrection and the theological implications of the resurrection is what's gonna soothe your soul in suffering and comfort you, then I'll do that. And then if you look, Mary needs to be comforted, but she comes to, it says in verse 33, when, Mary, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. So Jesus, what are you doing in my suffering is that Jesus is compassionately comforting each of us in our suffering. He's meeting us exactly where we need to be met and he's comforting each of us. Hebrews 4.15 says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize. Sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. When it says that Jesus was deeply moved, that, that word in the original language, it, it carries with this tone like he's sad and upset and he's angry at death. There's a part of him, is his heart is breaking and he has sort of this righteous anger in him over the consequences of sin, the wages of sin being death. And it moves him deep in his guts. It says in verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take the stone away. Martha and the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor for he's been dead four days. King James says he stinketh. <laughs> doesn't really, but that would be what I would do if I were writing it. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes. Now at this moment, like if you've been around on Easter, bells should start like going off. Caves and stones and things like that. Bodies inside buried and wrapped. All like little lights should be firing on your dashboard. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So Jesus, what are you doing in my suffering? Jesus is giving us a community to help us walk in the newness of life. Look at this. I don't, I don't know. When I read this, when I, I don't know how many times I'd read this. And I, Jesus goes, Lazarus, come out. And what I imagine is Lazarus comes walking out of the tomb. But that's not what it says. It says that his hands and feet are bound. He's literally mummified. So when Jesus goes, Lazarus, come out of the tomb, he goes... Like, that's what he does. And he's like. 
And then Jesus, it says, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What Lazarus needed and what Jesus was providing to Lazarus was a community that would gather around him and unbind all these signs of suffering in his life and help him to walk into newness of life. When I was about 12, 11, 12 years old, we were living in Nashville and it was summer evening, a bunch of my friends, we all, we all were into dirt biking. And so we decided we were gonna have like an evening dirt bike race down this hill in our neighborhood in between all the houses. And so we got up to the top of the hill and we all started going down the hill. And as we came down the hill, it kind of curved around our yard that was over here. And so everybody else went this way. And I thought, hey, you know what the shortest distance between two points is? It's a straight line. And so I decided to go straight. And when I hit on my dirt bike, that little curb, I went flying. I supermaned into the air, just flying. The dirt bike goes falling to the ground. I go soaring through the air. For half a second, it was cool. And then I land. It's two broken arm stories in the same sermon. Sorry about that. I, man, I hit the ground and bing, bing, compound fracture. I look down, my mom looks over. My mom goes, runs inside. She grabs a cookie sheet, a Southern living and duct tape. And it's like the most redneck splint you could have. I come into the ER with my arm on a cookie sheet. My mom's like, I'm gonna need the cookie sheet back. But listen, how ridiculous would it have been at that moment with the bone sticking out of my arm, and my mom's like, my mom and dad are like, we're going to the ER, and I go, no, no, hold on, you know what? Here, how about we do this? What if I wait until my arm heals up, and then we go to the hospital, and we tell them about how I had broken my arm and how everything was better, and then we just tell them and show them my, my healed up arm? You would go, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Because the whole point of the hospital is that you go there when you're broken. That is the church. And what so many of us do is we break and we suffer and we pull back and we go, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna wait until everything gets better and then I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna go, hey, look, everything is wonderful now. And what God designed the church to be was a hospital for broken, hurting people to be walked into newness of life. And what God has provided is this community, you all for one another, to help one another walk into that. I remember I was sitting in seats while I was actually over here in our church. And it was, it was about two weeks after I had had surgery and I had like, they kind of cut me collarbone to collarbone. And I'd been told, you know, it's gonna take a while for your voice to heal. And so I let, I let my voice heal and it came back and I started to talk. We're in church for the first time. The band stands up, they play the first note and they go to sing and I go to sing and it just goes and nothing comes out. And I thought, uh-oh, this can't be good. And I couldn't sing. And, I, and in that moment, all I wanted to do was sing. And I couldn't, and I remember stopping in that moment and turning and looking back at our, at our church. And I just said, Lord, would you take their singing and count it as mine? Because I can't do it right now. And I needed the church. I needed the community to come up around me 
in my moment of suffering. And that's what all of us need. We need that. And here, here's the last thing. Jesus, what are you doing in my suffering? Is that Jesus is ultimately pointing us to the ultimate hope and healing that is found only in his life, death, and resurrection. This, this entire account about Lazarus was not about Lazarus. This entire thing was a pointer forward. Well, I said all the bells on your dad and lights on your dashboard should be going off at that point in the story is because all of those things were pointing us to see that eventually Jesus would die on the cross, that he would suffer in our place on the cross, that you and I, we didn't live the life that God had called us to live and that Jesus did live the perfect life and yet he suffered in our place for our sin, for our brokenness. He was wounded for our transgressions. And on the cross, and then he was buried. And then three days later, he was resurrected from the dead. And this story, this account is meant to point us forward to the resurrection of Jesus and eventually to the ultimate resurrection where everyone who is a believer in Christ will get a whole resurrected body where there will be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain ever again. Listen to this, in Revelation 21.4, it says this, he, he's talking about Jesus, think about this. Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Imagine you stand before Jesus and he himself wipes away the tears of your suffering. He will wipe away the tears from their eyes and death shall be no more. Why? Because he conquered it in the resurrection and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is all about the fact that there is coming a day that if you are a follower of Christ, all suffering will be gone and you will live in a whole body for all eternity and Jesus will dwell with you in that eternity and there will be no more crying and no more tears and no more shame. All the bad things will come undone. And so here's what we're gonna do. There's a couple ways that we can respond to this. One of them is, if you're not suffering and you know somebody that is suffering, take them the casserole, right? You know what I mean? Like the cream of mushroom soup casserole. Take, take it to them. It's awesome. We love it. Bring them the casserole. And then when you show up at the door, don't say, here's the casserole. Hey, and I've got four more tips for you. Say, do you do know that Jesus endlessly loves you right now? Here. You, you do know that God is working for your good right now? Here. And don't give them any more good advice. Just give them some good news. And then in a minute, when the band comes up here to play and we're going to sing and respond, the elders and some members of our prayer team are going to be at the back of the room. And you all did this in your study of James, when you got to James chapter five, it says, if any of you are sick or any of you are suffering, 
Let the elders among you anoint and pray over you. And so that's what we're gonna do. That if you are suffering, the way you can seek the Lord in your suffering right now is to receive the good news that he has for you. And in a tangible way, you go and you be prayed for. You don't need to be embarrassed. You don't need to be ashamed. It doesn't matter what it is. You just walk up, you tell them a little bit about what's going on and they will pray for you, whether it is physical healing, emotional healing, marriage, children. There is no pain like kid pain. But you go and be prayed for. And then the last way we're gonna respond is this. Maybe you are suffering right now and you're suffering on your own. And what I mean by that is you're trying to do everything on your own. And the invitation from Jesus is, come to me. Come to me. You don't have to suffer alone. You don't. Jesus knows what it is to suffer and he suffered for you and he conquered it and he wants to be with you in the middle of your suffering. And so maybe you have never come to Jesus before. And maybe you never surrendered your life to him and accepted him as the God of all grace in your life. So what I'm gonna do in a minute is just ask you to bow your head and that if you would like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're tired of suffering alone, that you would raise your hand and that we would pray for you. So would you bow your head? And right now, I just ask you, if you would like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you don't want to suffer alone, would you raise your hand right now? Raise them high. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you are a God of good news. Not a God of try harder, do better, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work harder, but that you meet us in our suffering. You seek us out and you come to us and you offer love and grace and goodness. And so Lord, we trust you. Thank you for you in the middle of our suffering. You are more than enough. We love you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.